0: Well again, it's good to see you here at Freedom today, and uh, it's always a joy to have you here. And It's also a joy to now welcome in those of you who are joining us uh, live online, or maybe catching this later in the week in an archived version, but welcome to Freedom Online. Uh, We are in a series that is entitled Distinctly Christian. Uh, This week I came across the story of a, a mom and her daughter who attended church together, and the little girl went with her mom into big church. And so after the service, the mom asked her daughter, What did you think? And the little girl said, Well, I liked it. and But I, I did have some questions about it. And she said, Well, you know, tell me what your thoughts were. And she said, Well, you know, the pastor said that God is great and that God is big and that God's bigger than us. And her mother said, Yes, that's right. God is big and he is bigger than us. And she said, But the pastor also said that God... ...is in us, that God lives in us... ...and and He comes inside of us... ...and she said, that's right... ...when we accept Jesus, God does come... ...and He lives inside of us... ...and the little girl said, but mom... ...if God is so much bigger than us... ...but God comes to live in us... ...wouldn't God show through in places? Well, I've got to tell you... ...I think the little girl was on to something there... ...this great big God... ...who rules over everything... ...and who comes to live inside of us... ...if God is in you... He's going to show through in places, isn't he? And that's really the point of this series. If you let Jesus come and live in you, you just can't hide it. There's going to be some stuff that's distinctly different about you because God lives in you. Today we're going to be looking at a passage in Matthew's gospel account. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and be turning there with me. Matthew chapter 21 is what we'll look at today. And it's just... One of those things in this series about being distinctly Christian that stands out to me, and I really can sum it up with this one thought, that if you're a follower of Jesus, you've got to learn to love what Jesus loves and hate what Jesus hates. Would you agree with that? You know, we... We tend to think of Jesus, sort of the, the modern American version of Jesus, is He's just so nice. Jesus is just nice all the time to everybody, right? Isn't that the ultimate Jesus virtue is just always be nice? But it's interesting when you read the Gospels, you find all these times where Jesus, He had a sharp edge to Him. You discover that the real Jesus, He loved things and He loved people and He hated some things with a passion. And if you follow Jesus, you need to learn to love what He loves and hate what he hates. And today, we're going to look at a passage where we get a good look at both. And where we're going to pick up in Matthew 21. If you look at the beginning of Matthew 21, you'll see the heading, The Triumphal Entry. Tate has already read us an account of Jesus' Palm Sunday triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And uh, I'll just remind you, you know, on Sunday what that looked like. Uh, what Tate read, he had sent some disciples ahead to, to get a donkey that was considered a really noble animal in Jesus' day. We don't particularly honor the donkey today, but, but it had more meaning in that day. And bring it to him. And when he came in, he understood the significance of his arrival. And in some shape or form, the people had some idea that something big was coming. You have to remember that for quite some time, this thing had been coming to a head to the extent. That the last time Jesus and his disciples had come to Jerusalem, it was because of Lazarus' death, and it had not been many months removed, and the disciples did not want to come at all. Do you remember? They were saying, if we go there, we will surely die. This, This thing has just been simmering, and now it's coming to a boil. The religious leaders, they are determined to kill Jesus. They've already tried, and we know if we go back, somebody's going to die. They weren't far off base. They were correct that they were their timing was just off a little bit. So, you know, they Thomas was the one who finally said, well, let's just all go and die with him. Well, they actually made it in and out that last time without anybody getting killed. They are not going to make it in and out this time without Jesus dying. He understands that. And as he's coming in, Jesus gives us this powerful picture that he, the son of man who has been the servant of. Throughout his entire life in ministry, he arrives declaring that he is king by his presence coming into Jerusalem mounted on a donkey. When a king would come into a city, he'd come in either on a horse or on a donkey. If he came in riding a horse, it was a war horse and it meant that he had come to wage war on the city. If he came in riding a donkey, it meant that a king has come and he's come to bring peace. Jesus came in on a donkey declaring that the king had arrived and that his reign was one that would usher in peace. Well, the people are all shouting and and having a fit because they realize this thing's coming to a head. Surely this is going to be the time he assumes power. He's going to knock the Romans out and this is going to be great. And Of course, that wasn't the direction that it went at all. But when Jesus came into the holy city that day, Mark tells us that he went in. And he surveyed everything that was going on in the temple, and he did nothing. He went out to Bethany, where he stayed with some friends each night that week, and he went to think about what he would do. He, he really made a determination that night, what he would come in and do on Monday. And John tells us that on, Mo- on Sunday night, Palm Sunday night, Jesus didn't go back and, and prop up at the table and say, My, wasn't that fun listening to the crowds cheer for me? Jesus had his heart stirred. He was upset. He was flat out angry. He got some ropes and he got busy making himself a whip. And it was a whip he was going to put to good and thorough use come Monday morning. And so what we read now is what happens the next morning when Jesus has had all night to think about it, all night to make a whip, and he marches back into the city, and here's what he does when he gets there. Verse 12 of Matthew 21. Jesus entered the temple area, and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. You remember those two groups of people. Money changers and those selling doves, because we're going to come back to them in just a minute. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. He's actually quoting Old Testament passages from Isaiah 53 and Jeremiah chapter 7 as he's calling these people out for what they're doing. And then the beautiful thing is... now. Matthew just summed this up in a couple of sentences like it happened in a moment of time. But when you read all four gospel accounts, and by the way, this was such a big deal. It's one of the few things that all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four felt necessary to include. When you read all the accounts one after the other, you realize he did not come in and do this in 30 seconds. He came in and spent hours. He cleared the place out. It didn't happen quickly. He got rid of everybody that needed to go. And when he was done getting rid of what needed to go, there was room for what's supposed to be happening at the temple. Verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are are saying, they asked him. Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants that you have ordained praise? And Luke goes on to tell us that in this exchange, Jesus says, And if these children kept silent, today the rocks would cry out in praise. I love that. There's just something profound about that. Jesus understands who He is. He understands the power of that moment. And it's so striking that those who have studied the Scriptures and who are the religious elite who are so indignant, they want nothing to do with Jesus. They want nothing to do with this crowd that's shouting praises to Jesus. And Jesus said, let's be clear about this. If these people, if these children don't sing my praises, the rocks themselves will cry out to bring praise to me because... Everything in creation was made for one thing above everything else. And that is to bring glory to their creator. And Jesus said, that's what's happening in this moment. And God loves it when even little children just make the most basic sounds of praise. And then he left them. And he went out to the city of Bethany where he spent the night. When you look at this passage, there are a lot of things that stand out, but four in particular that I want you to pay attention to. And it's really, this is going to be a very, very simple message that I share with you today. As I said, the, the whole thing is summed up in you got to learn to love what Jesus loves and hate what Jesus hates. I'm going to point out to you two things that Jesus hates and two things that Jesus loves. And they're pretty straightforward in the passage. And the first one is very simply that Jesus hates to see people exploited in the name of religion. Look at just how much he hates it. When he entered the temple area and began to drive out all of the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. Knocking over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. Can you just picture the scene? This is a big, big area. And it is packed with people. It is packed with... with it, it's like a, a big livestock auction and a large portion of it. And Jesus goes in one man and just tears it all asunder. What an incredible scene because he is angry. He's angry because he sees something that he cannot stand. He sees people who are being exploited and they're being exploited for money in the name of religion. Let me just explain really briefly exactly what's going on on that day. When the scriptures talk about the temple... There are two different terms in the original language that are used to reference the temple. And they're talking about two different things. Sometimes when they talk about the temple, the word is the technical term for the building itself. The temple was a very small building, really. It was just kind of the size of of a modern American middle class home in terms of how many square feet it was. It was very small. And it didn't need to be big because the people never got to go in the temple. In fact, they couldn't even get real close to the temple. Only the priests could ever enter the temple and it was only... By lot, you know, very seldom would you get to go in the temple. And only the high priest once a year would go in the Holy of Holies. So the temple area, that's not what he's talking about, not the actual building. But, of course, surrounding the actual building were four concentric courtyards. And the way that it was laid out, the first courtyard immediately around the temple, where some of the different objects that were used in worship were set out, that was the, the court of the priests. And only the... The members of the tribe of Levi, you know, from Aaron's descendants, only the priests could go into that area and then outside of that. And each of these courtyards are separated by walls. And so beyond that, you've got the, the courtyard for Jewish men. Only the men could get that close to the temple. They couldn't go all the way to it, but they could get fairly near the temple. Beyond that is the court of the women. And that's where only Jewish women could go. And then there's a giant courtyard, the final one, that surrounds all of those, and that's the court of the Gentiles. Now, think about that for just a moment, that whole layout. You know, you've got first these inner three for the priests, the Jewish men, the Jewish women. But when you think about that, the Jewish people represent less than 1% of the world's population. And yet all three of the inner areas to get anywhere close to What represented the presence of God? It was all Jewish. There's only one courtyard for the other 99% of us who aren't Jewish, and it's the court of the Gentiles. So it's a very important place. All of the rest of the world, whoever comes to know about the one true God and who journey to Jerusalem to worship God and draw near to Him, this is their only place to draw near. The court of the Gentiles. And by the way, God loves the whole world. God loves us pagan Gentiles. That Jesus came not just for the Jews. He came for us Gentiles. And there was always, it, the court of the Gentiles is a great reminder for us. God has always loved all of the world. The court of the Gentiles is significant because it represents God's love for the whole world. Well, the Jewish leadership, which was so careful. Women, you better not come in the court of the men. We'll stone you. We'll lock you up. You'll be in a bad way, a world of hurt if you come in here. You know, so particular about all of those things. But when it came to the court of the Gentiles, they said, let's just turn that into a barnyard. Let's just turn that into a place where we do all the buying and selling and the money changing. We'll, we'll have like a stockyard out there and we'll sell animals out there. Well... They figured out, and it was really ingenious and wicked, they figured out a way to make a fortune off of what they did in the court of the Gentiles. Two different ways that they did that. First of all, everybody who came, they were bringing a sacrifice. Now you understand that in Jesus' day, there was still temple worship that was central to to the faith. That you brought your sacrifices to the temple. Now, there are synagogues that are scattered in communities all across the land and around the Mediterranean. Jewish synagogues, they're places of worship, but you don't bring your sacrifice to the synagogue. You bring your sacrifice to God, and God is at the temple. Do you follow me? So, I mean, one temple, one place in Jerusalem. So, this place is the... it, It was the Jewish equivalent of you know, Mecca for the Muslims today. You've got to get to Jerusalem. You've got to get to the temple because this is the one place you can offer your sacrifices. So each year, every faithful person has to come to the temple and present your sacrifice. Well, knowing that you're going to have hundreds of thousands of people each year flocking to the temple to bring their sacrifice, here's the genius, the wicked genius, of what they decided to do to make a fortune. We're going to make our priests quality control experts. Because you have to bring spotless animals to present to the Lord. And we're going to tell the priests: any animal that's brought in from the outside as a sacrifice, a ram, a bull, a goat, or a dove, you have to find something wrong with it. Regardless of whether you see a spot or a blemish, you say its leg is broken, its wing is broken, its neck is too long, whatever. You find something wrong with it and reject it. We only accept animals that have been purchased in the court of the Gentiles from one of our approved vendors. You see where this is going. So they've got an arrangement. Every vendor in the Gentile courtyard is connected to the high priest and his cronies so that they get a percentage of all of the sales that take place there. Well, you know exactly what they're doing. You have to buy inside animals... That, that are sold by the approved vendors, and the approved vendors were allowed to mark up the cost of their animals by up to 1,800%. Now, the wealthy people could bring rams, goats, and bulls as sacrifices, but most of the Jewish people, remember, they're a conquered and oppressed people, so most of them are very poor, and so a poor man's sacrifice was a dove. A dove, in Jesus' day, bought in a normal market, would cost four-fifths, Of a working man's four-fifths of a day's wages for a working man. I mean, that's pretty expensive, but it's doable. And if you only have to do that once a year, okay, for four-fifths of a day's wage, you can buy your dove that you're going to present as your sin offering. Your outside sin offering isn't going to be accepted. You've got to buy it from an inside vendor. Guess how much it costs from a courtyard vendor to buy a dove to present as your sacrifice for the year up to 15 days wages for one dove. Can you say total rip off? 18 times the the value of that thing. The Jewish leadership are lining their pockets. They're getting filthy rich off of what's going on here. That's one of the two ways. The other way that they're getting rich is everyone is required to bring a particular offering every year to the temple. A specific amount. And so they figured out, here's how we can up the ante on that. We're already going to get the money because they're required to bring it to us. But how can we get even more? They said, here's what we'll do. We'll tell them that we don't accept their money. We won't accept any Roman or Greek or Egyptian currency. The only kind of money that we will accept is temple money or Tyrian money, which hardly anybody would have Tyrian currency. Tyrian currency didn't have a, an image on it. Just like money today any coinage of the day had something imprinted on it, somebody's face or something was imprinted on it. It's like, that's a graven image, it's idolatrous. We won't accept that at the temple. So you're going to have to only use our special temple coins. It's kind of like, have you ever been to an arcade where they don't use coins, they only use tokens? And so you put your bills in, and then you just get these worthless tokens back that you can't use those tokens anywhere but in the arcade? Well, that's an old idea. They were doing this at the temple 2,000 years ago. But what they did, you know where this is going. You come in and say, all right, I've come to bring my $100 offering, so I need to take my Roman money and convert it to temple currency And so that I can give $100. Oh, no, no. The money changers would say, you're going to have to give me $120 in order for me to give you back $100 in temple coins. Because, you know, there's a fee I have to charge to convert your currency to something that God would accept. And so they would get a huge percentage off of doing the exchange. That's the sellers of the doves. And that's the money changers. The two particular groups that Jesus went after in there. Do you understand now why Jesus said when he went in and turned everything over and says he taught the people saying it's written in Scripture. My temple will be called a house of prayer for people from all nations. But you're changing God's house into a hideout for robbers. You understand why he's saying that, don't you? He's not exaggerating. These people are crooks and they are crooks in the name of religion. They're doing this to serve God. Okay, you read the passage. You tell me, how did Jesus feel about this? That wasn't rhetorical. How did Jesus feel about this? He is ticked! How ticked is he? Come on. I mean, how mad would you say he is? If you've got to go home and explain this to a friend, how mad is Jesus? Is it an exaggeration to say he is basically fighting mad? He's got what in his hand? He's got a whip. The man is mad. Don't get in his way. Okay, now here's the question that I have for you 2,000 years later. In the name of religion, for 2,000 years, people have been exploiting people for money. I mean, you realize this is why the Reformation came about, don't you? The one biggest driving issue was the sale of indulgences. The priests and those above them figured it out. We can tell people that they have to buy their forgiveness. We will sell them forgiveness of their sins. It's no different. In the name of religion, you fill our pockets and we'll say you're good to go. It's what they were doing in Jesus' day in the 21st century. It's no different. In American culture, these guys who were smooth as silk, snappy dressers... And in the name of religion, they are filling their pockets with the money of people who oftentimes don't have it to give. Their favorites to exploit are the elderly. People who are shut in. People who are pretty much stuck watching religious TV because they want to be near God and they can't get out and go to church. And they love to go after them. And they push, push, push for money, money, money. And if you look behind the curtain and you just read a little bit about so many of these people, you find out that they have made tens of millions of dollars to increase their personal net worth. And yet every week you're going to see them on TV pushing, pushing, pushing. You need to make your pledge. You need to go online right now. You need to pick up that phone. You need to make that call. And you read about some of these, some of the very best known people who have major national and international ministries, whose ministries are so stockpiled with money that if they didn't raise another dollar, they could operate five years or even ten years uninterrupted without raising another dime. And yet every day... They're pushing for money. Now you tell me, how would this Jesus respond to that today? He wouldn't sit back and pretend like it's okay. He wouldn't go, well, that's just how God wants to bless them. I can tell you how Jesus feels about that. It makes him mad. And it ought to make us mad. Because it does a tremendous disservice to the Lord Jesus and to our faith. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with talking about money. Jesus talked about money and possessions a lot. It was the second most talked about subject in the Gospels, if you count words. And we'll talk about money and possessions. Jesus would talk about the issue of giving. We'll talk about giving. Listen, if you don't give, it's disobedient to God, and it's foolish. It puts you in a bad place when you don't give. But understand this. When we talk about giving, we're never going to use manipulation to try and mess with people's heads and hearts to promise you something that the Scriptures did not promise as to what you're going to get because God wants you to be rich. And if you'll just make that big fat check, add another zero, and you're going to be that much richer because you gave that to us so that we could line our pockets, you're not going to hear that garbage here. And you need to run from anybody who talks that way. And quite honestly, I'm to the point, I firmly believe this, it's time we need to call it out. When you... Do a little reading when you begin to recognize who these people are. And you you listen to others who are singing their praises. Just call it what it is. False teacher. Stay away. Jesus hated it. He called it out. We need to love what Jesus loves and hate what Jesus hates. And don't be afraid to call a spade a spade. Amen? Amen. Moving on. The second thing you notice is Jesus hates to see worship replaced with activity. And man... This is one we struggle with here today. It says Jesus made a whip from some ropes and he chased them all out of the temple and he drove out the sheep and the cattle and he scattered the money changers' coins all over the floor. You know people are running in fear when they're letting their money be thrown all over the place, don't you? Because the one thing people are going to do is grab up their money. He didn't even give them time to do that. The money's going everywhere. He turned over their tables. And then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. You hear how offended Jesus was that the place of worship was being used for something other than worship. He despised the thought that the church had become a place to Hang out and buy and sell. And Mark even adds the little line that Jesus didn't even allow anyone to carry anything through the temple, through through the courtyard. Apparently, it had just become, instead of it being a holy, reverent place, it had become just like a thoroughfare. It was just a shortcut through that part of the city. Oh, we'll just cut through the, the Gentile courtyard because nobody uses it for worship anyway. We'll just, you know, take our wheelbarrow of, of goods through there. Jesus shut all of that down. I mean... I wish we had a video of this. All of the people that he's saying, no, turn around and get out of here. You're saying I can't even come through That's exactly what I'm saying. Turn that donkey around and get out of here. This is not your shortcut. Get out. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, remember? No. This is Jesus, creator of the universe, large and in charge. Why is he so upset? He's upset because people are being exploited. But he's angry because the place that is set aside for worship, he said it's to be a place of prayer for people from all nations. He's like, this place particularly, it's not just a Jewish spot, it's the place for all the world to come together to draw near to God. And I can't stand to see that just as a place of activity. Oh, well, it drew a crowd. Surely Jesus has got to be excited when you get a crowd to church, doesn't he? Even if it takes a little extra activity, Jesus is not impressed. And he's working really hard that day to take what is a special holy place and to make sure it's used for what it's designed for. And I just want you to think about this in two, two different applications today. One, I want you to think of it at the church level because it is it really is a problem in a lot of churches that it's very tempting to let other kinds of activity get in the way of what we're really here to do it's it's amazing how much you recognize this when you're a pastor how many different things can sort of crowd the agenda That get in the way of worship. All these other good things that people want to do and different special emphases and all the different things that people want to line up and say, could you have a day that's all about this or that features that, you know, in your worship service? And I want to tell you, I am notorious for being just the no man. (laughs) Thanks for your interest, but no, I don't believe we're going to be doing that. And it's not because I don't like these other causes and these other people. I just really want us to be ruthless about making sure that we protect this time. We get this once a week. And when we come together once a week for this, we're going to worship. We're going to pray. We're going to sing praise to Him. We're going to pray some more. We're going to study His Word. We're going to seek to respond to Him and receive from Him. We're going to pray some more. We're going to worship in this place. And, and I'm, just, I'm not talking down to you when I say this. I, I'm, I'm just confessing we all struggle with this, including the preacher. There are plenty of times that we come in this place and our intentions are good, but we're in a funk when we get here. Or we're, we're worried about our finances, or we fought with our spouse on the way in, or we're worried about our kids or something, and we come in and we're just kind of standing around. And we're just kind of going through the motions and we're not participating. And from time to time, we're just going to call time out and go, hold it. We're not worshiping in here. And we are here to worship. It matters to God what we do when we're in this place. And that just serves as a good reminder. It's activity to just show up and sit and stand and sit and stand and go home. That's activity, but that ain't worship. It's easy to do the activity of coming to church and just participating. It takes much more effort to actually worship. Now, I get it. I know if we all got real honest about it, that the biggest objection that people would raise is, I don't know those songs, or I'm not in a contemporary, or I prefer hymns, or I like, it's too loud, or it's too this, or whatever... I can't carry a tune. I don't like how I sound. I'm a little embarrassed to sing out loud, or whatever. Can I just lovingly say, I don't care. I don't care what flavor you like. I don't care how loud or quiet you like it. It wasn't for you to begin with. It wasn't for me. We're not setting the volume for me. We're not setting it for you. We're not setting the pace for me, for you. We are just trying to, every week plan services and select songs and content that just helps us to focus in on some aspect of God's character, His greatness, the worship that He deserves, and that just helps us to get there. And I have discovered I can do that with hymns. I can do that with contemporary stuff. I can do that with bluegrass, for heaven's sake. I can do that with a lot of different things because it's not about the beat, it's not about the style, it's not even about the volume, though I appreciate when my head isn't splitting when I leave, but you know, it, it's about me bringing my heart and my attention and my best to Him in worship. So can I just lovingly encourage you, I don't care how you sing. I can barely carry a tune in a bucket. I mean, and Jackie and anybody who sits near me knows the truth of that. But God loves our hearts in worship, when we just, and, and worship is an active thing. When we gather for worship, worship isn't worship until it's expressed. And Jesus longs for us to do that. He hates for us to exchange, exchange activity in place of worship. It's easy to do that at a church level, but I want you to think for a moment about how easy it is to do this at a personal level. Y'all, this is, we just need to be honest with each other. This is epidemic today. People who are what we would call the committed in churches today. The committed attend church 50% of the time. That's the really committed. The average committed church person goes to church half the time. And you know why? Because we lead busy lives. We've got so much else that's going on. We've just got other things to do. And I mean, you know, I'm there most of the time. But when hunting season comes, well, you're going to see me when hunting season's over. And when September rolls around, it's ball game weekend, so you're going to see me back in January. You get me about once a month up until then, but you know, I've got those season tickets. And last time I checked, they play on Saturday. I get it. There are going to be weekends for all of us when we're out. But friends... Being here half the time, when it's not like your job to be on the road six months out of the year, that's not commitment, that's convenience. We live in an age where activity has replaced worship. Now, I am so glad that we have an opportunity to connect online. I'm glad there are people right now watching at home. I'm not jumping on you. Hard. (laughs) No, I'm really glad that you're watching. But if you're at home watching out of convenience when you could have come, I hope you'll come next week. And I'll say for all of us, our online services are not designed so that you don't have to fool with this, getting dressed and coming. It was never designed for that. In fact, that was a concern about doing what we do online. We do what we do online to reach people that we couldn't reach here And so that people who are sick and who are shut in and who are out of town, who for whatever reason cannot be physically present on Sunday, can still track and be a part of what's going on here. And we're glad for that. We're glad that you're watching and listening. But never, ever, ever let the convenience of just, well, we just wanted to sleep in and have breakfast in bed and then just kind of watch when it was convenient at home. Because it's the same thing. It's not the same thing. It absolutely is not the same thing. There is something significant that happens when we get together. Is God present when you worship Him individually? Of course He is. Is He pleased by that? You better know that He is. Is it the same thing as when we get together? It absolutely is not. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, he was addressing a totally different issue, but tangentially he he mentions when you are together for worship and the power of the Holy Spirit is present. Here's what you do in that power. He's referencing that when you get together and you are the worshiping body together assembled man there is an anointing there is a presence there is power available that is just it's being unleashed when we gather for worship in a le- at a level and in a way that you're not getting watching this on the couch or in bed at home and so it is significant that we prioritize this i'm not giving the talk to try and increase attendance this is a heart issue And Jesus never wants us to allow worship to be replaced with just activity. And sometimes convenience lets us do that. Two more things and we're done. The third thing that I want you to notice, it's moving from the hate to the love portion. And that is that Jesus loves the place of worship. And he loves people who worship. This goes hand in hand with what I've just said. In John 2, the John account of the cleansing of the temple says, When this happened, the followers of Jesus remembered what was written in the Scriptures. My strong love for your temple completely consumes me. Other translations say, Jesus speaking, Zeal for my Father's house consumes me. I love that thought. That Jesus is saying, I love the place of worship there's something special about the place where we worship. And it offended him that that place would be misused. And we ought to have a similar zeal about this being a special place, that that should matter to us. And of course, Jesus loved people who worshipped. And The Matthew account, it says, When the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did, and and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him, Yes, he replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. It's an interesting last little phrase in that line there. That you have called forth praise. You know, when we worship, we're never the audience. God is always the audience, and we collectively are the ones on stage with God being the audience. We we sit in something that's sort of the reverse of the reality in the heavenlies. You get that? that. That when it's worship, God is actually the only one who's seated on his throne. He is the audience, and everybody that's a worshiper is an active participant on stage. And you know some are really into it we don't have to all do it the same but it's hard for worship to look like this since worship is something that's expressed it's interesting that it says that the lord has called forth praise it's an interesting picture of how even though god is the recipient god is the in a sense kind of the spectator that he is an active spectator that he realizes that in a sense all of us are children who are just learning the vocabulary of worship. We're learning how to worship. And that God, like a parent teaching his children to speak, that God is calling forth his praise this morning. That God is just, is all over this room. He, he's, he's kind of like tickling our hearts, just, just inviting us to connect with him in a way that even though at some level we sort of feel like, you know, who, who is God? Is he like Donald Trump on steroids that, that he needs to be praised all the time, that it's always about him? Well, if you 're a politician, there's something really sick about that. If you are God, it's fitting that it's always about you. Don't get hung up that I just said Donald Trump 's name. That wasn 't planned, but I just but he does drive me crazy. God is worthy of worship. And as much as we might want to analyze that and go, you know, what kind of person needs to be told how great he is all the time? He doesn't need it. The universe exists for his glory. And because we're designed for his glory, there's nothing more satisfying or settling than to draw near to him and to connect with him in worship and adoration. And boy, he gives back in that that loving exchange. I've used the analogy before, you know, for those of us who want to overanalyze this and just go, I don't really understand that, and I, I'm really not that into worship. You tell me, how, how into sex are you when you're married? How old does that get? How, how worn out does that intimate encounter become? Let me tell you, in 48 years of life, the thought of that has never gotten old to me. Intimacy is a good thing always, Amen? Worship is the most intimate encounter that we ever have. It is. And God... I mean, again, romance is the, is the imagery of, the, of worship. God is enticing us. He is calling out worship from us. Come and draw near me. I, I want to receive from you and I want to give to you. It's, it's a loving encounter between the God who made us and, and ourselves. And every time we gather for worship, God across the room is saying, will you come in? Will you draw near? Will you encounter me? Or will you just kind of stand there? What are you going to do? Is it going to be a fresh, intimate encounter with God at this level? Or is it just going to be going through the motions? And what about in your personal life? Can I just admit to you that this is, in my personal devotional life, this has always been one of my biggest struggles. It's been an up and down thing. That personal worship... Is just a challenge. And I bet for a lot of you it's, it's probably true. It's like it's natural to read the scriptures. It's natural to say my prayers. It's natural to do requests and to pray for all the people who are on my prayer list. But I feel the press of the day and the need to get on with other stuff and to just take minutes to just worship God and give him glory for who he is. That is the easiest part to get crunched in my, in my prayer time. Anybody else struggle with that? Okay, I'm the only pagan in the room. All right. Well, I can move on then. It's just me. No, I know a lot of us struggle with this. And I want to tell you, there's nothing more significant that we do in our personal time than to just declare the goodness and greatness of God and our love for Him. The fourth and final thing that I'll say and we're done is this. This passage is also a reminder that Jesus loves to meet the needs of those who worship Him. When He had cleared the temple... And it's so easy to, to think that it's just all about kicking out the bad people. But it means so much more when you read verse 14. That in the middle of this, the blind and the crippled people came to Jesus in the temple. And Jesus healed them. I love the fact that worship is for God. And it's about God. And God is always such a giver that in worship, he's always giving gifts back. We come to to bring our gifts of of praise and adoration and our offerings and just everything to Him. And God just loves this exchange, but He makes it an exchange. And he He gives these gifts. We come in with hearts that are hurting and that are doubtful and that are fearful. And God ministers peace. And He gives gifts of hope. And he gives gifts of provision. He gives gifts of healing. He gives gifts of deliverance. In the middle of us coming in, sometimes not even recognizing the opportunity that we have to, to ask and to receive when we just begin to engage in worship. Jesus says, oh yeah, this is what it's all about. I, I am so present and my power is so present where people are worshiping. And the nice little surprise is, you know, it's like when a grandparent shows up and they've always got gifts with them. They've always got gum in their pocket or candy in their pocket I mean Jesus is the ultimate because he's always got something in his pocket he's always got something up his sleeve and he's giving gifts in the middle of us worshipping and here's the awesome thing today whether you thought about it whether you had one tiny little sense of expectation about it today Jesus showed up today with something for you I know that could so easily sound like just preacher speak. It's the truth. You came needing something today, whether you were aware of it or not. Hey, some of us are like, you ain't got to tell me I need something. Let me give you my list. I know. I know some Some are there. But there are some that you're like, I, I had not really thought about it. I don't even know what I need. Every person in this room needs something today. And the cool thing is, Jesus has got big pockets. He came to worship so looking forward to this exchange, this intimate connection, but also so longing to just deposit into us exactly what we need. Because you see, when you clear all the other junk out of the way and you just draw near to the one true living Jesus, you always wind up having needs met in that exchange. We can get real about what we do need. We can just begin to lay that bare. It's so cool when all the junk got stripped away, the people who were willing to be honest about their need were able to just gravitate in and go, Jesus, I, I need your touch. I need your healing. I need your help. Could you, could you touch me? Could you pray for me? And Jesus had time for everyone. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I've got what you need. I, I, I'd love to. Come, come on, come come closer. Let me touch you. Let me pray for you. And one after another, they walked away changed. We're not done here today until we've had an opportunity to just ask God to meet needs. We've gathered to honor Him, but also to receive from Him. So we're going to pray together, and then we're just going to have a time where you have an opportunity to to just receive from God, to be prayed over, to just be ministered to today. So would you bow together with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, you are good, and you're so real. I thank you that the Scriptures make it clear that you loved and you hated. You are a passionate person. Would you help us to learn to love what you love and to hate what you hate? Thank you that what is so clear is how much you love people. I thank you for your love for us. And I pray that today you would meet us in this time. And that you give gifts to your people. I pray for some who right now are struggling. Who need a gift of faith to believe you to do the impossible. Who need to believe you to just save them. God, we trust you to supply that today. We welcome your work and we invite you to speak and move in our lives today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.